I'll do. I think I will go into my consultation room and I'll just sit. Sit? Yeah, like you do. Just sit. What? You can't. I can't what? I can't sit? Is that what you're saying? That is ridiculous. I am capable of quietude, Marilyn. I am capable of, of solitary reflection. Want a bet? A bet? What, you mean like a wager? Five dollars. How long? Five minutes. Five minutes? You don't think that I can go in there and sit for five minutes? I'll give you six. Let's go. Come on. You want to see you guys sit? I'll show you guys sitting. All right. Start the clock. Begin. with you staring at them. It's creepy, okay? It's horrible. Nobody. My money. You know what's funny? I think that we live most of our lives actually in silence rather than any noise being produced whatsoever. But we only really remember the times in which we're speaking or at least there's some sort of form of sound going through. It's really unusual now that I think about it because that scene that we just played for like two and a half minutes, that one right there, it's really quiet. There's nothing going on except for three camera shots between Joel, Marilyn, and the neutral shot that shows both of them. And at the end, Joel can't take it. Yeah, that's right. There's very little happening, as you described, just a few shots. But what you're not getting from this soundbite, obviously, is the visual, um, which makes it feel even more empty. But I love that they keep cutting back to sort of a close-up single shot on Marilyn. And she seems more and more just imposing on Joel, like she's, you know, it's almost like shots of Marilyn looking straight down into the camera, like a straight shot, almost as if she's peering straight into your soul. So maybe you have a little sympathy there for Joel, or you can understand why he breaks so quickly. But I mean, yeah, silence can be terrifying, uh, which is something that I guess maybe Bernard and Joel work through throughout this episode. I guess there's a lot going on with them. Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of themes in this episode that are intermingling with each other. Uh, Silence is definitely one of them. I I find it really interesting that you would think that speaking would be the most direct form to communicate, but oftentimes people can cross the wires, like paper cut phone lines being tangled, and you just can't get the message that you're trying to get. Mm. You're just struggling to communicate. You misinterpret what each person is saying because you're going in at one end from your mouth and then you go through the conduit of the air 
and then somehow between that conduit and another person's ears, the message just comes out with a different idea. This happens all the time, so it's really difficult to communicate that. But with silence, it's a void where it's very perfect and nothing can be misinterpreted right then and there. Only really your nonverbal communications are the ones that are being spoken at that moment. Yeah, there's the idea that a lot of communication is body language. And that could also be why that sort of communication breakdown that you're describing is amplified by text messaging or emails. It's kind of hard to get the right intonation or the right message just with words. Um, With speech, you have inflection. That also helps. Like, you know how when you ask a question, maybe your voice lilts upward in pitch. But still, there's uh, even just with speech, you're not able to, for instance, that opening soundbite, you're not able to see body language or, uh, you know, without, without the visual, that is also another part of communication. So it's not just right. uh, words or sounds. Yeah, you're, you're kind of like filling in the blanks of what you're imagining this scene to be if you had not seen it. <laughs> and you're taking and extrapolating that with your own meaning. Right. Uh, Charles, what are we talking about? Okay, before we go and jump off the proverbial uh, cliff right now, what we're talking about is Northern Exposure, the CBS television sitcom series that aired in the 1990s. We're in season four right now. My name is Charles, and this is my co-host, Lee. That's right. My name's Lee, and Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. I'm a veteran fan of the show. Charles, this is like you're discovering it for the first time, but of course, we're four seasons in, and you've got a pretty good uh, rapport built with the show, with the characters, the relationships. But we also like to get a completely fresh perspective. Usually at the end of every episode, we'll invite someone who has never seen the show and just get their fresh take, really sort of analyzing it out of context, but also in the context of now, like 2021, almost 30 years in the future Uh, I guess this episode aired in 1993. The air date was January 11th, 1993. The title of the episode is Revelations, the 12th episode of the fourth season. Revelations, directed by Daniel Ateas. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But he has directed, let's see. Well, he directs more Northern Exposure down the line. This is his first episode of Northern Exposure that he'll direct, but he'll continue to appear on the show as we get further. Uh, it's also important to note that he, I think he works mostly in TV, though he's directed so many TV series, like episodes for different series. So he gets a lot of work, it seems. And the last bit of credits, I want to say, we're rejoined by writers Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider, who are the you know husband and wife partnership that have churned out a lot of scripts for this show. Oh, nice. I got to say, so right off the bat, I really enjoyed this episode. There is a lot to dig through. Now, that's not to say that there isn't imperfections to be found. I think that would have two main critiques on this episode. But as a whole, I pleasantly enjoyed it. It's been a while since I've seen a Northern Exposure episode in which I was like, oh, this is actually, this is fantastic. I like what they're doing here. I like what they're trying to explore. Kudos to them for going beyond just like the surface level plot lines or themes. They went a little bit underneath that. Yeah. And I applaud them for it. I would say I could definitely see what I can definitely uh, understand what you're putting down with the uh, with the Joel plot line specifically. That's a very like almost passive um, internal conflict. And that's kind of really hard to put on screen 
I'm not saying that they like knocked it out of the park, but I definitely applaud the effort there of trying to show a story that's so internal in in a show like this. I think I think Northern Exposure the series does that more often than other shows, you know, it'll it'll go into small conflicts and uh really just like internal not necessarily <laughs> explosive or exciting conflicts, but just the uh, the small things, I guess. I I do want to say though uh for me, I wasn't like particularly a huge fan of this episode. I remembered, um, without spoiling too much, I definitely remember the twist that happens. We'll get there. Uh, so that was like burned into my mind. I kind of remembered this episode for that. The Chris going to the monastery, that's sort of a big set piece uh, in the episode, in the series. You know, Chris is going to this sort of environment with a lot of monks but I didn't really remember how it all wrapped up and what the idea of the whole episode was. But I do agree, Charles. There is a lot to dive into here. So uh, whether or not I like particularly loved the episode, I applaud uh, just all the stuff that's going on in it. So I want to talk about the Chris plotline first. Yeah. We mentioned uh, sort of this monk environment where Chris is going to a monastery to seek enlightenment. Actually, the introduction to Chris's plotline in this episode is by Bernard, who's back at the helm and K-Bear. And I did want to touch this real fast before we jump into Chris riding into the monastery on his Harley. Uh, before we see that, <laughs> Bernard is on the radio. I just wanted to point out the music is really sort of calming music in the background. I'm guessing it's a David Schwartz original it reminded me of like the Sims shopping music whenever you're like shopping on the Sims or <laughs> like the like the Mii channel on uh, the Nintendo Wii. Like just very calming. My mother had recently purchased a Nintendo Switch. She had gotten <laughs> it for uh, the video game Just Dance. It's the what? one where you like, uh, yeah, you like hook up your Wiimotes to like each one of your arms and you, you dance with the characters on screen. <laughs> and she doesn't know anything about technology, so I had to install it for her. And I never used a switch before, so it was a learning experience for me. But while I was doing that, I was like in the lobby of the switch channel that has like a, a looping music that goes throughout it. And it's it's really similar to that. And I think for like an hour, I was just hearing that looping music <laughs> go back. Trying to install. <laughs> I just got that stuck. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I think that there's a lot to unpack in what Bernard is saying here, even though it's relatively short. I think it's only like a two or three minute speech right here. But he says a lot of things that I think connect throughout the entire episode. So to begin with, he's talking about Chris uh, joining the Brotherhood of St. Dismas. And I had to look into this, but St. Dismas is also called the Good Thief. And he was crucified along with Jesus on the cross. But Jesus bonded with him while they were together on the cross. And Jesus decided to forgive him and decide that he would come to his kingdom despite being a petty thief. I've tried Googling what the Brotherhood of St. Dismas was. And I couldn't really get anything out of that. I don't know if that's like a fictional thing that he created within the Northern Exposure universe or uh, I just didn't dig deep enough. Right. Yeah, no, I looked into that too. St. Dismas seemed like it might be important if it was based on real life or I just wanted to see if there was a real St. Dismas. And as you said, yeah, conveniently, it kind of ties into Chris's character who is sort of like a thief with the golden heart, you know, is a reformed convict. Um what I noticed when I looked up St. Dismas is he's also, I guess the first thing that comes up on Google for me is um, it says impenitent thief. So meaning like not feeling shame or regret about being a thief, but also 
I don't know. It's kind of confusing. No, no, no. It says the impenitent thief is a man described in the New Testament account of the crucifixion of Jesus. So it must be this Saint Dismas. Uh, so I don't know what that exactly means. Does it mean that Chris is unable to repent or maybe he feels that way? Um, it's interesting that you said Jesus still forgave this thief just because they, you know, they got to know each other or they spent that moment of time at the crucifixion. But no, I don't think there's an actual order of a brotherhood of St. Dismas. I think it was conveniently used uh, as a symbol or a theme to tie in with Chris's character. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that you say that. I, I would actually say that it's something within its very nature. So because of that, you couldn't ask more or less from what the thief was. Mm. A thief was a thief. Yeah. So I think that would be my interpretation. And Bernard brought up two things. One, he brought up Thomas Merton. And two, he brought up the quotation within Thomas Merton that said, the inmost secret center of our spirit. So Thomas Merton was a monk slash priest in the 1940s, 1930s. He was really famous for publishing a lot of works, but was also a giant proponent of interfaith understanding. So he didn't just look at Catholicism. He looked toward East Asian religions. He used all sorts of branches of spiritualism to connect each other, which is going to be a central thesis I find in this episode in which you find lots of things that you don't think are similar, but actually are once you pass through the quote unquote, the air in which mm. you're speaking and you're listening. So not just like beliefs and religion, but all sorts of things that can be connected that we don't notice. Yeah, like he's finding a connectedness that we all share together rather than things that divide us. And I tried finding the quotation of him saying the inmost secret center of our spirit, but I couldn't exactly find a direct quotation. The only one that I could find was this. Contemplation is also the response to a call, a call from him who has no voice, and yet who speaks in everything that is, and who, most of all, speaks in the depths of our own being. For we ourselves are words of his, but we are words that are meant to respond to him, to answer to him, to echo him, and even in some way to contain him and signify him. Contemplation is this echo. It's a deep resonance in the inmost center of our spirit, in which our very life loses its separate voice and resounds with the majesty and mercy of the hidden and living one. Nice. I can already see that language sort of tie into this opening soundbite that Joel has, and later we'll discuss it with Bernard, how it's sort of this existential crisis. You stare yourself you stare deep into your soul. But I like Thomas Merton's um, perception of this sort of inner silence and contemplation uh, as being sort of an enlightened, an enlightened thing, an enlightened moment maybe. But uh, for Joel, it's kind of a different perspective. Uh, but I don't know, maybe Joel comes around or learns something about that throughout this episode. <laughs> and Bernard ends it with saying Godspeed, which I always thought meant like the speed of God, but it turns out it, it's not. It, it means a prosperous journey, which comes from the Middle English phrase, God sped you, like speed as ah. an S-P-E-D-E. -E, yeah. And that's where we just translated it to speed. And I thought it was really interesting right there. That's funny. The speed of God. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, that's pretty cool. So this would tie us to or bridge us to, like I said, there's like, you see a monk lighting candles on a statue or something outside of a monastery and Chris rolls in on his Harley. I think he's like, what, does he say like, howdy? I forget what he says. He's like, oh, hey, check it out. What's up? He's like rolling into this monastery. 
Oh, he hollers. Oh, he's just like, woohoo. I know he does that yeah. when he like hops off <laughs> and he arrives. And uh, he's met by Brother Timothy, played by Stephen Root, famous uh, character yes. actor. Yeah. I guess uh, I know him from the movie Office Space. He's like the stapler guy, but. I think, I think most people would know him from that. Yeah. I think that's got to be his most distinctive role. Uh, he was, mm, he's got so many roles. Which one do I pick from him? <laughs> I guess. News Radio? Oh, is that the TV series or is that a movie? That's a, a TV series. Okay. I haven't seen that. You haven't seen News Radio? Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, that's, no, it's fantastic, man. It's oh, got, you uh, check that out. Yeah, it's such a good show. I think you would actually really like it. It's got the late, great Phil Hartman in oh, it. Oh, nice. Dave Foley, uh, Andy Dick. Um, oh, wow. It's also got Joe Rogan in it. It's like one of his <laughs> earliest roles. That's actually like probably what, you know, propelled him. Propelled him to where uh, he is. <laughs> And, of course, Stephen Root. And, yeah, what a delight that I saw him on the screen. I was like, oh, yes. Uh, he's, he's perfect for this role, too. I think that he did a fantastic job this episode. Yeah, he's like a very calming, centered, uh, just welcoming presence to Chris. And it's funny. Chris has all these uh, misconceptions or he has this idea of what going to this monastery might be like. Like, the, he expects the food would be gruel. He expects, like, uh, he wants a hair shirt, which I had to look into, but I guess this hair shirt was made to cause irritation and discomfort. Monks would wear it as, like, maybe a, a form of self-flagellation. Uh, like, causing pain to yourself to maybe clear your mind or distance yourself from pleasure in life. Just maybe that is some way of reaching some sort of clarity or enlightenment, or at least that's what Chris believes, but it's not really that way when he arrives at the monastery. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. Uh, I guess it would be a form of penance between them, but yeah, I guess, uh, I guess I'm with brother Tim's interpretation <laughs> is that that's probably really needless. Like if you if you want to go and seek redemption, you don't need like an outside physical force weighing on you. I feel like that's unnecessary. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> you can go without it. I do think it's funny. Uh, they call their rooms cells. It's like, let me show you to your cell. It sounds like a, pr- <laughs> I don't know if that's just what it is actually called or if that was a choice with the that word, that language. So Brother Tim introduces the idea that they have an apiary at the monastery. So him and Chris head out, and that's where they're introduced to all of the different members that are there. So Brother Luke, Brother James, and of course, Brother Simon, who has taken a vow of silence to not speak. Yeah, Chris is um, pretty fascinated by the idea of a vow of silence. I think Brother Timothy says... At some point, he's like, oh, yeah, I did that for 12 years. But Brother Simon just apparently just never speaks. Um, I don't know how long it's been going on. That's what catches Chris's attention. And throughout this episode, Chris is trying to get closer or maybe understand Brother Simon, it seems, at first. Um, But this attraction certainly grows. It's funny, though. uh, (laughs) I think it's not necessarily this scene, but another scene at the apiary, which is like where they... I guess, gather the honey from the bees. Chris is like approaching. He's trying to find Brother Simon and everyone's wearing those like beekeeper masks. So you can't really see. It's like a mesh. You can't really see the face. And um, this happens more than once in the episode, but Chris like uh, asks someone, in a, you know, in one of these masks, is like, are you Brother Simon? It's like, no, this is uh, Brother James. It happens like twice, like later on when they're eating. It's like, uh, oh, hey, Brother Simon, is that you? It's like, no, it's me, Brother James again. Oh, that's actually really funny, though, because the beekeeper mask and suit that they wear don't distinguish each other from one another. But you need them in order to work with bees. 
And because of that, you kind of lose out on a little bit of your individuality. There's nothing that you can use to express yourself other than your actions. But what you're wearing on the outside is all similar. And that is a really good detail that I would say that you brought up right there. Yeah. So the idea that is this, are you relating this maybe back to that sort of communication? Because because there's nothing to differentiate your, sorry, nothing to differentiate yourself apart from, especially with Brother Simon, if you can't speak, apart from maybe your walk or your gait or some sort of physical language? Yeah, some sort of nonverbal communication, which is the only way that you can do it. Yeah. I would also like to say that right before we skip this, um, we're going to talk about the scene more, but just really quickly. In Bernard's next radio address, he talks about St. Benedict and how St. Benedict had a lot of problems with chastity. In order to overcome it, he actually threw himself into a briar patch and just got thorns stuck all over him. And it's kind of similar, in my opinion, uh, with the imagery of thorns. You get the imagery of bees that are being stung. But just like you were saying about the hair shirts, the bee seeds prevent them from being stung. Just like they don't wear the hair shirts to not get stung as well. Yeah. And even um, later, Chris will have a dream where he's stung by bees. And I think he says he even likes it. But um, yeah, that, that is definitely a similar image. Thorns and stingers. There was a word that you said previously. You said clarity. Yeah. And I like that because I think that's actually really important in the next scene that we see with Chris. Okay. So Chris is meeting up with Brother Simon. And he's kind of being loquacious. He's overly speaking. Mm -hmm. He's saying too many words. And he's telling him... Uh, that like, oh, I speak too much. I, I just talk. Hang on. I think we actually had the soundbite for this. You know, it's amazing how well a person can sleep on one of those straw pallets. I mean, I was a little itchy at first. Then once I got past that, I slept like a baby. Brother Simon? Is that you? Hey, look, I don't mean to get in your face or anything like that. It's just ever since I read St. Augustine in the joint, you know, I've been in this kind of religious philosophical thing, you know. And then finally to meet a guy who's dead to the world, I can't even begin to tell you. I mean, the valve silence thing just blows me away because talking's what I do. I'm a DJ, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's like a, a craving, a real need with me. You know, I'm like a, like a word junkie, you know. I, I, I never shut up. I talk in my sleep. I, I talk to myself. And for somebody to voluntarily shut off that tap, it's like, whew, I can't even imagine. Like all the rivers of the world just suddenly slam to a stop. No, no churning, no flowing, no white water, just stillness, bone-crushing stillness. I couldn't stand to be locked up like that in my own psyche. I'd, I'd collapse into myself. I would implode. So we see that Chris is trying to overly communicate using his words, and he's trying to, and he's trying to make Simon understand what he's going through. But there's not clarity between his words. They're not coherent, and he's not able to properly communicate right there. And I really feel for Chris because I'm kind of the same way where I'll just overly speak rather than <laughs> under speak. Like I will just fill the silence with the sound of my own voice and hope <laughs> to God that like whatever I just splatter on the wall will stay. Like something will stay and attach to this person. But obviously there needs to be a tightrope act where you have to find the right balance between them. Yeah. There's like a certain focus that is maybe lacking in Chris's, uh, out spewing of words. I mean, I think he comes across a point, but he's um, sort of elaborating on different ideas, like the feeling of the bone-crushing stillness of water, like flowing in different, all the rivers coming, like implosion. Like he's very flowery language, um, but it seems like, you know, he could use an editor, I guess. <laughs> so that's what maybe what you're saying, Charles, is like an internal editor in your brain 
perhaps this is something that uh, some sort of enlightenment that Chris could gain from being at the monastery is understanding that uh, silence, communication, choosing your thoughts, uh, silence may be a form of uh, contemplation, you know, and choosing your thoughts. I don't know if that's exactly what transpires by the end of the episode, but that could be something going on internally with Chris. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that it's saying that like less is more sometimes and being succinct is much better than being overindulgent. And it also leads to being more abstract whenever you don't overly explain something and you leave room for interpretation. Because I think that when you live in a world where one word is attached to one meaning, that's not a great world to live in. Because I think the expression of one to many is much more beautiful. Yeah. I think something that I jotted down while watching this particular scene is trying to understand Chris's infatuation with this character. Chris is maybe obsessed with Brother Simon because Brother Simon is achieving something that Chris himself could never do, or it's something maybe he wants to aspire to, something he doesn't understand how it's done and wants to learn that form of enlightenment. I wonder, is it okay to spoil it right now? Because there's the other yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. The other side could be that Chris is attracted to Brother Simon because Brother Simon is not a man. Brother Simon is secretly a woman uh, hiding within this monastery, which I think if you take it in this context of this scene, like one or the other, maybe it's both. But if it's one or the other, doesn't that rob the first part of some of its power? Like if it's just that Chris is attracted to Brother Simon because she's actually a woman, doesn't that like steal some of the power? I mean, maybe it yeah, could be both. Yeah, completely. But, sorry, go ahead. I completely agree with you. I, I wasn't a big fan of that twist of revealing that Brother Simon was a woman, and also that Brother Simon had the same name, <laughs> the same given name as There's, Chris. That scene is like it's almost as if like um, it's only there to like connect some dots to get like it doesn't really feel organic to be there. It's a bit of a surprise, which is nice in a story, but. I don't know. Maybe we can. Uh, there's probably a couple more scenes before we get there. So let's let's try yeah. to let's keep going down the down the line, and and we'll we'll open it back up when we get to that scene. So let's go to the next scene where they're in the dinner hall, and we had talked about it before. We were saying that Chris is speaking with Brother Tim, and he is surprised at the quality of the food that they're eating. It's something. Um, what is it again? It's a, a French dish. Yeah, the cassoulet. Cassoulet. Right. And that's the scene where he's like, I expected gruel. Um, and again, obviously, it's Brother Timothy can just say, sure, you know, that's fine, but it's not necessary. If you want to gain enlightenment, you don't have to. Uh, we like to eat food. We like flavor. I actually think this is a really interesting shot because right when he says the word gruel, the camera goes to a neutral shot where it shows Chris and Brother Tim, but there is a very bright blue stained glass painting that we never see until he says the word gruel right wow. then and there as if to draw your eyes to be like there's a such a strong juxtaposition of gruel and beauty that beauty yeah, of that blue stained like, glass right and you would think that exactly what chris was saying that like they would eat mundane bland things but in actuality it's quite vibrant and beautiful nice so the next part of this chris brother simon storyline chris approaches brother simon again at the apiary and somehow uncontrollably uh, just begins attempting to kiss Brother Simon through the mesh mask. Of course, this is a dream. At first, it seems quite real. You know, like it seems like, uh, you know, maybe this is what would actually transpire if Chris wasn't sleeping. Yeah, I like the setting of this. Like the sun is setting down. You can see some yellow and pink in the horizon right there. They're kind of much more muted colors. 
And I think that this is a much more interesting idea than the one that's laid out to us later in an episode when it's revealed that Brother Simon is a woman. Because I thought it was a very interesting struggle between Chris's sexual orientation. Because for him, that's a large part of him. So for him to even want to kiss a man, it kind of shakes him to his core. And I, I feel like it's a little bit of a cop-out. I'm not saying that Chris should have his sexual orientation be changed. I'm just saying that it was an interesting idea to explore. But for them to kind of say like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It was a woman at the end. <laughs> kind of okay. like, it, yeah, I, I just wasn't a fan of that. But at this moment in time when I was watching the episode, I was like, oh, this is very interesting to watch. Very interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a, a very interesting topic to explore, like sexuality. And they sort of tangle with it a bit. But there are some moments that are... I think a little insensitive, maybe. For instance, it's mostly this next scene. Chris goes to a not-so-anonymous confession. Brother Timothy is on the other side of the uh, mesh or whatever, the screen, uh, however confession works. And pretty instantly, Brother Timothy recognizes the voice and says, oh, Chris, is that you? And it's supposed to be anonymous, but it's like, oh, it's whatever. I'm, I'm, this is what I'm here for. You know, Just tell me what you need to confess. And um, you know, Chris is describing his urges, uh, he's describing his infatuation with the female body and, uh, describing the, uh, like the neck, the legs, the supple lift of the breast. And you can see brother Timothy, when they cut to him, he, he sort of does like a gulp, like a nervous gulp, and maybe he's sweating, but there are certain phrases, not only in this scene, I'm trying to remember where else, but for instance, in this scene, Chris categorizes his sexual erotic fantasies as impure thoughts. Of course, this could just mean like chastity. In the in the um, in regards to chastity, these are impure thoughts. But I almost wonder if it could be interpreted in the wrong way. Like that homosexuality could be an impure thought. Um, this is not the only instance where I got sort of that inkling. I don't know if that's the intention of the writer at all, but uh, it's just. It's just there for me. No, I can see how you can be led down that path. I can definitely see them being like, oh, no, this is actually like the unjust path. And like, you should be wondering in this one particular direction. And that's the correct one. Especially with just like the Catholic Church's attitude towards um, homosexuality. Right. Their, their stance on it. I think one neat shot in this scene, though, is that whenever Chris and Brother Tim get into a pivotal moment, the camera kind of goes where it shows both of them side by side, but there's a clear black bar dividing them right there. And yeah. it's really black, like almost to the point where like if you just saw this scene out of uh, context, you would think that there's like a smudge on your screen right there. <laughs> Or that they're like on two lines of the telephone, like it's a split yeah. screen thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. And I like that because it's showing like it's a clear divide between yeah. these two characters and the ideas that they're trying to transpose. Yeah, I mean, it's visually there. Uh, even in the writing, you could imagine like this could this idea could originate in the script, you know, because in a confession booth, there is a clear divider. Um, yeah, it's a great device to use for this scene. I do want to also say, just touching back on this idea, this... Uh, inner turmoil within Chris, I did think it was interesting as a look inward into his identity. Like he's struggling with what he believed he was. I think where it could go wrong is when you compare Chris's past sexual orientation, being a straight man and somehow making it uh, favorable to what he's feeling now, or perhaps, you know, he's like, oh no, I don't want to be turned this way. 
I think it's interesting just if he's struggling with his identity, but if he feels that he's uh, losing something better maybe for his sexual feelings now, it's oh, okay. kind of hard to express, but go, we'll go ahead. I think I'm getting what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you, so you're trying to say that like, it would be better for Chris to be worrying about losing a part of his identity rather than losing the part of his identity that defines who he's straight. So in other words, losing part of who you are is really scary. It's, it's understandable that you don't want to do that for anybody. But if the reason that you are fearing the change is because your belief that homosexuality is right. wrong, <laughs> then that's something that like you that you should work out that like that's not a proper one to be doing. But if you're worrying just because it's just a change in your life, yeah. that's understandable. And like now that we're talking about it and looking through my notes, it definitely seems that the writers were focused on this struggle of identity um, and not like a fear of changing sexual orientation. Uh, one is better than the other. But I, for some reason while watching it, I think <laughs> – I don't know if I was just not in a great mood when I was watching this last night, but it was definitely giving me the wrong signals. But I think if you, I think if you do like analyze it, at least from the notes that I took, it seems like the writers are focused on this idea of identity. That is a big theme. I think that also goes into Joel's storyline too, which we'll get to. So there is a way to interpret this that is less offensive, I think. No, but I, I like that you're approaching it in this manner, though. I like that you're coming at this being like, uh, you know what? I think that there's room for this to go south really quickly <laughs> if you didn't handle this with uh, with poise. So the conclusion of this confession is Brother Timothy tells, it's kind of funny, he tells Chris, well, I guess the only thing you can do now is confess. And Chris says, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm confessing to you. Of course, Brother Timothy says, no, you got to confess to Brother Simon. That's like, for me, that's the only way right that I can see. Yeah. So we go to the next scene with that in mind, with Chris scrubbing the floors. Probably makes sense that he's on like mundane chore duties. <laughs> and he tries to crawl and peek underneath the door of Brother Simon. Uh, I think that one, I don't know why I keep thinking about this, but I think one stylistic shot that they could have actually done was actually have the camera show from Chris's point of view of him ducking underneath and <laughs> looking through the small little opening. Cause yeah. it would have created an effect of like, there's the floor on the bottom, then the gap in which you can see possibly like the foot and then the door right above it. So it would have been sandwiched in between there, kind of like a rock and a hard place imagery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe they shot that. It just, you know, is left on the cutting room floor for whatever reason. But this is where Chris lays it all on the line and he explains to brother Simon why he's been up at night. Uh, he's been thinking about him and that, you know, really, if he could just, just see him naked, that would just solve everything. <laughs> Yeah, he wants to see like the strong legs or I'm trying to remember the imagery he uses uh, to describe this fantasy. But Chris also has this line in the scene, it's worse for me. I never thought I could feel this way about a man. Again, like does that uh, sort of negatively portray homosexuality? Like, oh, I never thought I could steep this low or be this dark or impure. Or is it you know, you could also interpret it again like I never thought I would lose this identity that I, for Chris, like he said, he was always attracted to women even when he was a toddler, apparently. So it could go either way. It's just kind of skirting a strange line, you know? It, it's a, it's a, right. It's tricky territory. Right. No, no, no. I completely understand. And the scene ends with Brother Simon just walking away and not saying anything, continuing his vow of silence. Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's like an exasperated 
exhalation from Chris. I'm trying to remember how that scene ends, but yeah, it's pretty rough. So then the next scene with Chris is Brother Simon coming to his room, and this is the scene where we get that sort of uh, reveal, that crazy reveal. But now that I think about it, when I'm just looking at the storyline of Chris throughout this episode, why didn't this reveal happen in the last scene? Like whenever Chris confessed to Brother Simon, why didn't she just reveal herself then? It's not until you know some time passes that she comes to his room now in this scene. So... This scene is kind of just like blurts out kind of everything all at once. Brother Simon starts talking. It's like, Chris is like, whoa, one, you broke your vow of silence. Two, you're a she. And three, (laughs) your name is not Simon, it's Chris. Uh, Wait, why why does it need to be? Why would she call herself Simon if her name was Chris? Because that still is a male's name. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I I think you're right is that Chris Chris can be a girl's name. I've definitely seen women named Chris. Uh Uh-huh. You don't really see a lot of women named Simon. Okay. So maybe that can be a reason for why she decided to take on that name so that it can only be interpreted as male. Right. I think that this is a classic example of telling rather than showing. Yeah. And that that is usually a cardinal sin. But if I have to go find a silver lining within the scene and connecting it with the thesis that's running throughout the episode, we see that contemplation and quietly looking inward upon a reflection of yourself is something that we're trying to hammer home with. And that is what's happening with brother Simon slash Chris is that she had to look inward and know that it would be a greater sin for Chris not to know the truth than for her to do a permanent chastity against men. So it required her to focus inward in order to come to this conclusion. So I think that's a reason why she didn't reveal who she was on the other scene. Right. And that is her excuse. She says, it would be a greater sin for you not to know the truth than, you know, for me for me to break the vow of silence is not that big of a deal, I guess, in this context. It's like you said, it's telling rather than showing. And then also, it's almost like an overload, a triple whammy. And each segment is more unbelievable. So you're just kind of wrenching the audience away from this story. You know, breaking the vow of silence, that's surprising. He's a she, like, and then her name is, for whatever reason, I just feel like that little, the name being Chris is kind of tacked on. Well, well, why do you think it's important that her name is Chris? Is it just so that Chris can relate that this is him or he has the power of silence within him? I don't really get that from it. Those are all viable options. I, I think that it's an overreaching symbolism in demonstrating that there is multiple Chris's. So even though they are similar in name, yeah. they are different in both gender and in actions. So I think that's what they're trying to demonstrate right there. But maybe I'm just too hard on it. Like maybe it's really hard for me because I, I feel really bad whenever I say something is uh, overwrought or that <laughs> it's heavy handed. Because maybe to some people it's not. Maybe it's really elegant and beautiful to other people. And me saying that is just uh, – it's just harmful. It's just negative for me to be crapping on someone else's joy. So – at least for me, for just me speaking personally, <laughs> I felt that they could have done it differently, but I understand what they were trying to do. No, yeah. I mean, you're right, Charles. There's lots of different ways to interpret any piece of art. And I think that's something that I've learned in a large way through this podcast, because we each, you and I each have a lot of times different perspectives that I find both equally valid. Like they're very interesting ways of slicing the apple or whatever you, a metaphor you want to use. Um, but I do like what you're saying, that there are multiple Chris's 
we don't have to have one specific identity. I think if we're using identity again as a central theme, we can have multiple different perspectives on ourselves, and it doesn't have to be soul-shattering to discover that, maybe. Yeah, and that leads us to the next scene, which I, is also the second part in which I'm disappointed, <laughs> too. And it's a double whammy in that I was disappointed in, like, the uh, uh, penultimate scene and the ultimate scene with Chris. So this one has Chris returning back to the radio booth at K-Bear, and it's another instance of telling rather than showing. And I think it actually would have been more powerful had they not had this scene. Like, it actually did more harm than good. <laughs> I see why they did it though. Like it, it's it's not terrible in in what they're saying. So let me set it up. The yeah. scene is basically Chris directly telling the audience that he had a metaphysical moment, that he had a strong epiphany, and that he realized that women needed to be there to balance out men, that they would have been brutes without them, and that they are there to temper. Uh, I, I disagree with that, yeah. but I get what they're trying to say in that there needs to be something that balances. I get that. Like I said earlier, like most things, and pretty much all things in life, there's always like a tightrope in which you need to navigate between too much, like speaking too much, or speaking too little. Uh-huh. You need to get that right amount right there. And... I think that that is an elegant lesson, but trying to tie that into gender and perceived gender roles yeah. is where I, I kind of like fell off. Exactly. I was exactly going to say that, but yeah, the gender roles being assigned to the woman tempers the man or even vice versa, that's just sort of putting these genders in separate boxes and it can be cheesy, you know, usually the ending monologue can be cheesy, or it can also be super powerful and affecting. And I think, um, you know, to some, this ending can be powerful and affecting. There's beautiful music and uh, flowery language. Maybe perhaps to me a little cheesy with the imagery of just like cutting to B-roll of the different women in town, like... Uh, young girls and older women, uh, just like a montage of just B-roll extras, you know, running around town. Right, right. And I, I just don't like how he says, like, my lesson today was X. <laughs> like, yeah. That's that, the- it's just like, your audience is smart enough to know when you're giving, like, like your thesis statement. Well, I'll say maybe there is a bit of unfocused uh, theme going on here because it's like, is it about gender uh, identity? Is it about, what is it about enlightenment? Like before he gives that whole ending monologue, I wrote in my notes, Chris thought enlightenment would be like self-flagellation and cutting yourself off from beauty, just all drab and simple. But in the end, he finds out that he just really likes women. (laughs) He's really attracted (laughs) to women. So like, you know, it's uh, obviously that's not what they're trying to say, but I feel like the episode could be unfocused a little or the audience may not find the focus. So perhaps that's why they have to drill it in with this um, this monologue. But I don't know. There is definitely a lot swimming around in this plot line. Nice. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, that ends. Yeah. That ends the Chris plot line. Uh, should we move on to the next one? Yeah. Uh, the other one should go by a lot easier. And then also we can tie in sort of maybe see if we can get these themes wrapped together. The next one we can go to... Let's do Joel, because I think uh, the final one perhaps has less to do with Chris, but uh, maybe we could find some relations. But Joel, as we saw in the opening soundbite, is dealing with 
the problem of just like sitting and being still, kind of similar to Chris uh, doing this inward contemplation, Joel is having no patience. So he has uh, literal like uh, his um, patience, P-A-T-I-N-T-S, but I guess you could also say he has no patience in the scene with Marilyn as he can't <laughs> sit around. Got a little pun going on, but he has no patience to treat. So he's found himself with idle time. And I think the first scene we see him, he's like cracking walnuts. Very interesting. He's like cracking them in, in rows. Uh, I was wondering, like, is he just trying to get like the perfect walnut that's unchipped or why do people crack walnuts that way? What What is he doing? I'm actually not too sure to the logistics of it because I've never cracked a walnut in my entire life. But I thought that was really interesting that they must have had a reason for doing that because there's a particular shot in which is just the walnuts. <laughs> yeah. and, and they're, they're in those rows right like there. Lined up, yeah. I think that one particular interpretation could be that like they all look the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're They're all kind of identical looking. That's, again, kind of tying in. But he's obviously looking for a certain one, though. Yeah. So yeah, that's what that I demonstrates that they are not equal. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe on the outside, they look the same. And then just the act of cracking it could disturb the... Uh, that's what I thought. He was like trying to get the perfect crack where you have like a walnut that is not uh, crumbled or anything. Just a whole piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when Marilyn comes in and announces... Uh, They've arrived. The pencils have arrived. Like he got a, st- a new stock of pencils, but still no patience in the uh, in the waiting. Kind of need that it's pencils, though. Why is that? Because you write with pencils, and that's another form of nonverbal communication. Oh, okay, yeah. Text uh, versus uh, the verbal communication. It's been what is it? Two weeks since Joel had a patient. Marilyn, it's been two weeks here. Two weeks since a, a patient has walked through that door. What's going on? I mean. Is this something that I've done or, or said? Is this like some kind of boycott here? Nobody's sick. Nobody's sick. <laughs> this is the peak season for general medicine. There's bronchitis and chill blains and walking pneumonia. I, I should be busy here. I should be I should be overworked and harried. I've re-alphabetized my files. I have answered all my personal correspondence and, and I've played innumerable games of solitaire. And, and, and you know what? Mm-mm. I'm going out of my mind here. So yeah, that kind of sums it up. Uh, there could be a lot of ways this story could go from the setup, but by the end of this uh, little monologue, we get the punctuation of I'm going out of my mind here. And that's the existential crisis, the struggle that Joel has to grapple with for this episode. Right. And I, I like that he says that he plays solitaire because <laughs> instead of being solitary and just sitting there, he has to use a game. He has to use something to occupy his mind so that the hamster wheel within it just keeps spinning and spinning <laughs> right there. But we see that the pressure is getting to him. And uh, we can see it in the next scene, which is where Joel goes to the brick. He's having lunch and he meets Bernard and he's trying to explain to him how like three years ago, you know, in such a stark contrast, he was being overworked. There was just no breaks whatsoever. There was an outbreak of swine flu, and he only had one hour of rest, and then he was back on his feet. And Bernard kind of relates back to him, saying like, well, you know, on April 15th, on tax day, it's the same thing. Like, I'm up to my necks on 1040s. I'm trying to find missing canceled checks. I'm doing all this work, and I love it. I love being that busy right there. Yeah, I... uh I wrote down, wow, taxes are so exciting. Not, it's not very exciting. <laughs> but I think that Joel's reaction sells that because it's, uh, it's supposed to be humorous, obviously. Like no one gets excited about taxes, but because Joel just misses that, 
adrenaline rush of being so occupied and busy. And I guess that's the idea of living in a big city, moving to a small town of Sicily. You know, Joel comes from New York. Um, but that feeling is gives you that rush. And Joel's reaction is like, yes, yes. He's like holding his fist up and he's like getting really thrilled by taxes. How do you, how do you get excited about that? Uh, okay, so if I overanalyze this by a little bit, I think that it's good that he's having positive connotations toward the tax man because a lot of the times <laughs> yeah. that has such negative connotation because it's like, oh, I got to go back here and I got to go pay it back. We're going to see this idea later in Maurice and Ruth Ann's storyline with uh, interest. Like the not not like I have great interest in this. I mean, like the, the concept of paying back what you owe with you know additional money. That that, that interest. <laughs> There's lots of like double entendres or uh, double meanings in, in what we're saying now this episode. So yeah, we can see, and I do like that this is a sort of like a camaraderie with uh, Joel and Bernard. They share a lot of scenes together in this episode. I think at some point might be the next entry in this plot line, but uh, Bernard gives like a radio bulletin. Just because Joel is so out of work, out of patience, he reads a radio bulletin from Dr. Joel Fleischman, basically like, when was the last time you had a mole checked? Like, please come see me. Like, if you need anything medical for any reason, come come stop by the doctor's office. Hey, we're going back to that theme again, man. You know, moles are really similar to each other, but, you know, one could be cancer, one could be benign. <laughs> there you go. We're really digging deep into this, man. We're just uh, we're just overworking this uh, particular metaphor. Now, I said this before, kind of at the top of the episode, this struggle doesn't necessarily make for great television, just inherently. It's an internal struggle. It's very passive. It's not something that Joel can reach up and grab or strive for. But it's still an interesting idea to explore. And I think that's what Northern Exposure tries to do a lot of times. They want to explore ideas. Um, and it's not always flashy. Uh, so even though I was, I could see, kind of see straight through this plot line for being kind of um, thin or lacking with conflict, I appreciate the topics they're trying to tackle. Right, right. I love that. You can kind of see this being demonstrated in the next scene, which is between Joel and Marilyn. Joel kind of goes into his office and he's telling Marilyn about, you know, his struggles of what he's going through. And he asks Marilyn, he's like, well, you're like, you're just sitting there. How do you do that all the time? Like, how can you be this silent and just sit there? And Marilyn tells him like, well, I'm thinking about things. And he's like, well, what are you thinking about? <laughs> Paper clips, colors, and, you know, just abstract things. And that's what loses Joel because he can't comprehend that you could not be thinking about your profession. So much like Chris is having his sexual orientation being drilled into his identity, the idea of Joel's profession is being drilled into him as well. And he feels like he has to constantly be thinking about that. Marilyn can take a step backwards. She can go below what the ordinary line would be and just kind of just keep to herself and have quiet contemplation. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's just like that comparison to Joel's identity being linked to his profession, Chris's identity being linked to his sexual orientation, and uh, what happens when those are challenged. That's a, that's a great connection there, I think. So the next time we see Joel is again with Bernard. He's, I guess he's like driving through, uh, so it's super foggy, and Bernard is on a jog, really cool, setting, you know, just out in nature, very foggy. And Joel drives up in a pickup truck, hops out and, uh, you know, it's like 
trying to just hang out. He's so bored. He asks Bernard, let's go play some basketball or, you know, let me come to the station with you. If you've got to go get on the radio in an hour, let me just come. I'll, I'll uh, dust off some records. I'll clean the tape heads. You know, I think that would be a cool scene. Joel and K-Bear. Because, uh, let's see, sorry to, to, to derail it for a second. Joel has a really great scene with Chris in season one where they're like sitting in K-Bear and uh, Chris kind of, gives them some philosophical advice. They're sitting there together and mulling over some things. That was Brains, Know-How, and Native Intelligence. That's uh, one of my favorite episodes. I actually really like the idea that you're saying that Joel needs to be in Chris's place because it kind of brings into the idea that Joel is not in the open, like walking in the street talking with Chris or in the brick. He's in Chris's place. He's in K-Bear. So Chris is in a much more familiar, much more comfortable environment to be doling out advice. And I think that kind of dynamic we don't see a lot like you said we only saw it in season one it would be much more interesting to see that being played out more yeah and i mean they do have scenes like throughout the series when joel goes to chris's um trailer uh and obviously anytime a character goes in joel's office he can give them advice or seek advice from them uh but i just want to see joel and k-bear some more well (laughs) i don't know why um Anyway, that doesn't happen. In this scene, Joel talks to Bernard, and what goes on there? Yeah, this is where Bernard kind of gives him the quintessential advice of being like, all right, just sit still. You know, that's the problem with you, is that you think that you have to go do something. You have to quit running, or else you're going to lead like an incomplete, totally neurotic life. And I think what's really interesting about the scene is not actually the words. It's actually a very minor thing that I'm I like a lot. It's the choice of wardrobe and color. Hmm. So the truck and Bernard are this bright blue that looks like it belongs in the sky. But the sky itself, like you said, is very foggy. It's gray. There's not a lot of light to be found there. So it's like the sky came down to Earth itself, which is where Joel, who's wearing earthy colors and tones, is interacting with it, giving us the theme of, once again, like, where would the Earth be without the sky? Where would the sky be without the Earth? Oh, wow. Like the two sides, the sky, the Earth, all converging on each other. Uh, Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I, I think I agree. Like, the words are powerful and flowery, but for me, not necessarily the the greatest part of this scene I liked the moment when um, Bernard tells Joel to look at himself in the mirror. And actually he says, um, he's like, what do you see, a stranger, a cipher? Uh, That was interesting because I wasn't really familiar with that definition of cipher, but he uses like one of those, it's like one of those, like you go down the list of the definition, like the meanings, and you find cipher means a person or thing of no importance, especially a person who does the bidding of others and seems to have no will of their own. I think this comes from the meaning that cipher could be um, like a zero or like the figure zero. But oh, yeah, okay. that's interesting definition for that word that we don't obviously, uh, we don't often use that word in that context. But you said it. You said, uh, you know, Joel is going to keep running or he's going to always live an incomplete, unfulfilled life. But Bernard says um, the reason this is going to happen is because you – you won't be able to come to terms with the fact that your existence is meaningless. I don't know if necessarily I believe that your existence is meaningless, but I think I understand what they're trying to say is that we talked about this already. When you sit in silence, you almost look into yourself and that is a void that can be very frightening when you realize just the whole existential complication, the possibilities 
can be frightening. Right. You're standing at the entrance of the universe, and you don't know if you want to take that step forward right there. <laughs> and for Joel, he just... It's so hard for him to look into the deepest, inmost center of his spirit. And of course, this is what monks do, perhaps. You know, is this what monks do? And this is uh, can connect us back to that Chris monastery idea. It's almost as if Joel could also be at his own, you know, quote, monastery. So we talked about it in the opening soundbite, which is the scene where Joel and Marilyn have that silent standoff right there. But before <laughs> we go into the final scene, there is actually something I missed out on. Um like I said earlier, Joel's wearing very earthy tones on his clothing. He's wearing like a brown shirt, brown tie, and a tan parka right there. Marilyn wears a very bright, multicolored shirt right there. And she even wears like an even brighter blue. Those, those jeans are like really striking amongst his office, which is also surrounded by a lot of brown. The bookshelves are brown, the cast is brown, the wall is brown, and the chairs are brown. So Marilyn is a very striking figure, even though she is the quietest of yeah. the town. And I like that. That color of blue, obviously, we've talked about a number of times already in this podcast. You know, why wouldn't there be some significance about that specific color for this episode? We talked about the blue stained glass, uh, Marilyn's wardrobe. Was it the pickup truck is actually kind of blue, like the bringing the sky mm -hmm. down to earth? That's great. I love that stuff. So that brings us to the last scene where Bernard is jogging in his blue tracksuit, and that <laughs> that's where he meets Joel, who's playing, I don't think it's Solitaire. I'm actually not entirely too sure how Solitaire is played, <laughs> but it, is he playing Solitaire? No, no, no. He's uh, well, It looks like he's got baseball cards. So at first I thought it was playing cards, but when he goes to shuffle and pick them up, he's like shuffling them off the ground and uh, grabbing them again. It looks like he was just tossing cards into a hat. So if you think about like a... Uh, What's that famous shot? I'm just thinking about the shot from uh, when Harry met Sally, where Billy Crystal's just like flinging cards. You get it's like it's all you know, just practicing the wrist motion of flinging a card yeah. into a hat. There's a scene in West Wing as well where uh, Sam gets to earth-shattering news that his father was having an affair, and yeah. he's in the the mess, and he's taking sugar packets and just tossing him uh, into like a hat, I think as well. Yeah, I think this is just a very great visual um, message, you know, to show that this character is lost in contemplation and just, for instance, you know, doesn't know what to do with himself. So it's in this scene where Bernard, <laughs> well, I think it's, it, Bernard comes to him because he's like, hey, I finally need a doctor now, right? Is that what happens? Yeah, yeah. He's saying like, I have, like, you know, pain. I think Joel says like, no more existential angst. He's like, no, 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 I have like physical pain. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But it's true. I don't know. I don't know if we understand that Joel, if he if he learned anything or if he grew somehow, it's only internal. I don't know if we notice any particular change because uh, this brings us back to the status quo. Like Bernard is like, I do need to see a doctor now. You know, it's a little pain. And Joel gets to snap back into normal. Uh, so I'd like to think Joel has gained something from his solitude this uh, from this episode. But uh if, if he has, it's perhaps all internal. Right. It's very hard to demonstrate that unless you were just going, you know, telling rather than showing right there. Yeah. We're happy to be to have Joel back to normal, but it was nice to explore these thoughts, I guess, for some time. Maybe it's hard to answer. So maybe Joel hasn't figured it out probably, but uh, it's one step, I guess, baby steps. <laughs> so our last plot line deals pretty much with Maurice and Ruthann, but Ed kind of gets tossed in there. Uh, the way it starts is actually the opening of the episode. Maurice and Ruthann are sitting together. 
Um, there's some sort of meeting. It's the first of the month, I guess, and rent is due. So Ruth Ann, if we hadn't known this before, she rents the store from Maurice. But on this particular day, when she pays rent, she pays the remainder of whatever is necessary. Uh, she's like exercising her option to buy the store from Maurice. Yeah, she pays off the remaining $5,000, which catches Maurice off guard. And I have to say that I like Ruth Ann's color choice right here and what she's wearing. She's wearing a yellow coat. It's kind of like a flannelish, really neat, actually. I, I think it's a really cool looking <laughs> coat. And she has a shirt underneath that has sunflowers, like to represent that there's something sprouting from the dirt and that she's overcoming something and having the sun come to her. Nice. So I think that's a neat little trick that they're using right there. And this is where Maurice realizes that he's losing control, that he can no longer boss around Ruth Ann. Yeah, he sort of feigns politeness in this scene. But as we see the next time with Maurice, he's complaining to Bernard about what's going on with Ruth Ann. Bernard, interestingly, relates it kind of to sexuality in a way. He says it's almost like castration. Uh, it's emasculation that it was a control thing for Maurice. And now Ruth Ann has taken that control away from him. Yeah, I thought it was kind of odd that he brought up sexuality right there or yeah. the topic of masculinity because I don't think it has to do anything with masculinity. Well, it can deal with masculinity. I just think that he shouldn't have went in that direction because it's implying that this is like uh, a behavior done by men. I think it's in the writing as a way to maybe synergize with the Chris plot line, but I agree. It's like I don't necessarily think it's a great piece of imagery for that. It's not exactly accurate. Or also that um, I wrote in my notes, like, uh, I don't think we necessarily need this scene, but it's important to maybe turn up the temperature a little bit before they have their confrontation, Maurice and Ruthann, their first confrontation. But yeah, I think we get, we know this already, even from the first scene that uh, it's a bit subtle, but Maurice is definitely unnerved by Ruthann's um, power play, like pulling the control away from him. Right. And that brings up the next scene that you were talking about where they actually go head-to-head, -head, their first real conflict of the episode, which is where Maurice is trying to put her back into debt by saying, like, you know, if you have a loan and you make payments on it, those interest payments are actually tax-deductible. So you'd be saving money, but what... <laughs> I, I don't I don't know how this wasn't lost on Maurice. Like, what, what he's failing to realize is that it puts her back into debt right there. Like... This reminds me of the people that would deny a raise because they think they're going to go into the next tax bracket and that they'll be taxed more, but they don't realize that only the amount that goes over that tax bracket is being taxed and not the entire amount. So you're losing money always yeah. when you do that. Um, <laughs> I felt that was kind of strange. But what I found really interesting is that Maurice is trying to bring up the topic of interest, the practice of making payment with an additional payment on top due to the lost value of time. And this is actually something that's looked down upon in some religions. So particularly in Christianity, the practice is called usury, which is when you're making unethical or immoral monetary loans that unfairly enrich the lender. The term may be used in a moral sense, condemning, taking advantage of others' misfortunes, or in a legal sense, where an interest rate is charged in excess of the maximum rate that is allowed by law. So I think that is really interesting that he's trying to enact something that is heavily frowned upon in religious matters. Maurice is acting very unholy in this scene. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, just tying it to religion. I never thought about that, but uh, I could see that 
I could see that playing into religion for sure. It even ends with Ruthann yelling at Maurice and telling him, hallelujah, you pompous old goat. <laughs> You're right. And that again enacts it. So I actually looked into this. I didn't know why goats were used as like the symbol for satanic imagery. But here's something that I found on the internet. So this is some cool interpretations. So sheep are dependent on the shepherd. They have a reputation for not topping the list of the most intelligent animals, but they do trust and depend on their shepherd. Goats, on the other hand, have a reputation for self-reliance and stubbornness. This could, perhaps, reflect the worldly idea of leaning on oneself for support and guidance rather than God. Ah. And then the next one is a physiological thing where they look very similar, but their behaviors are super different. Which brings up one of the themes of the episode of being similar, but actually different in essence. So the sheep and the goat look the same, but one is in Christianity, a imposter, the other is a believer. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah, I love that sort of dualism or just even having multiple identities, personalities. And then also, yeah, there's so much religious overtones in this uh scene. We've got the hallelujah, the unholy tax practices, the goat. That's crazy. Um, wow. I, uh, this, this I, is, I, well, hang on. I do have to say that like, it, there is nothing wrong with interest in terms oh, of financial sure, sense. Sure. Like, yeah, you should, it is absolutely needed. Um, well, I, I also wanted to say this isn't really religious, but I thought it was funny. Ruth Ann. Well, it's awesome that we get to see Ruth Ann kind of gets so enraged. We don't really see that. That actress doesn't really get to play that very often, but it's fun to watch it in this scene. But also she says, you know, it's like she didn't say anything. Every time Maurice wanted to make some sort of change or some sort of suggestion, she went along with it. But now she has control. She's not going to take it anymore. But she lists like uh, a number of things that Maurice did, like changing the light fixture maybe, um, or he's like paneling or something. But I thought it was funny that one of the things Maurice made Ruthann do was to stock 300 copies of the right stuff, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about the population of Sicily being like less than a thousand. <laughs> There's 300 copies of this book about astronauts, I guess. We've talked about the right stuff before on season one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I guess she doesn't she doesn't uh, specify if it's the book or the movie, but she had 300 copies of of one or the other. And before we move on to the next scene, we can already see Ed is also in this scene. He doesn't really partake in the exchange, but we can see his reaction to what's happening. And uh, soon after this, as this plot line unfolds, he becomes more and more entangled within this, uh, this feud. Yeah, that brings us to the next scene where we can directly see that happening, which is where Maurice is working out using this old, uh, I'm not entirely too sure what it's called. Yeah. I, Do you I, know what it's called? I I'm not a fitness person, but it's like, it's definitely not a Bowflex. I'll say that, but it's like, you move your yeah. arms. Okay. Move yeah. it from like side to side right there. <laughs> and Maurice wants Ed to work full time for him. Now it's not because he actually needs to help full time. It's just because he wants to rob Ruth Ann of whatever dignity that she has. Yeah. Uh, we got a little bit of show Bible here that Ed started working for Maurice when he was 16, uh, when Ed was 16. Uh, but you're right, yeah. I would expect that Maurice would play this kind of trick. What I wouldn't expect is that the very next scene, Ruthann asks the same from Ed. She basically, I guess for the same reasons, like wants to undercut Maurice. So before Ed can 
tell Ruthann that, you know, is like, I guess I got to work full time for Maurice. Uh, Ruthann asks Ed to completely drop Maurice and, and start working for her full time. Right. One other small little detail in that scene with Ruthann and Ed is that Ed's painting uh, the shop again, and he paints it what Maurice used to like, which was Apache tan. But Ruthann wants to paint it desert sage, and I googled both of the colors, and they're relatively similar. I yeah. think that Apache tan is more brown, and <laughs> desert sage has a mix of yellow and green, but they're both kind of earthy tones at the end of the day. It doesn't really matter that much. And I thought that was, again, another theme of them, like, miscommunicating. Like, they're obviously almost the same, but they're still different. But still, one character wants it one way, and another character wants it entirely different. And I thought that that was, again, wires being crossed. Yeah, yeah. And I, we do see at the end of the episode the the new paint job because uh, Maurice, you know, compliments it uh, when he goes back whenever, you know, things have blown over. So, yeah, they do look pretty much the same, <laughs> if you ask me. So Ed has to come up with a plan. He's sitting in the brick eating pretzels and drinking milk. That's a, a interesting combination. But, hey, he's just trying to pass the time. And he says, uh, well, Shelly calls the milk bovine juice, but uh, Ed says, yeah, it's helping me think. Shelly gives him an idea, the movie, The Parent Trap, you know, the idea that these two twins are separated and one lives with the mom, one lives with the dad. They need to bring their parents back together so that they can fall back in love. And Ed extrapolates this to mean, you know, he needs to get Ruthann and Maurice in the same room and somehow they will be able to communicate. Now he does a little more than just get them in the same room, but yeah, that's the that's the trick that he's trying to set up is like, how can I get them on the same level again? Right, and I thought that what was really important in that scene is that Ed was looking toward movies to try to find a solution and the movies that he was looking to, like Lion in the Winter, were really deep, heavy-hitting ones. Oh yeah. But Shelley gives him the idea of a very quote-unquote simple one and Ed even remarks that it's a very Disney-esque idea yeah. to parent trap somebody. But I like that idea is that sometimes simple is good. Taking a step back, like taking a step back and saying less is actually good. So, yeah, fun nice. things are fun, man. <laughs> yeah. Simple is good. <laughs> yeah, playful. It's not dark and dreary and um, cerebral. It's just like a simple, playful premise. And at least in this episode, it works because, well, Maurice runs over to Ed's shack, apartment, house, and Ruthann enters like shortly after Maurice gets there. Apparently they were summoned around the same time to meet Ed and Ed has left them a TV and a tape. I think the tape says, play me. Maurice is basically like, um, I think he wants to tell us something. So uh, suit yourself, but you know, I'm going to sit here and watch this. And they start watching the tape. I think it's interesting that somehow, so Ed is on the tape. He's on the screen. Somehow he has predicted where Maurice and Ruthann are going to stand because whenever Ed speaks on the TV screen, he says, oh, hey, hi, Maurice. Hi, Ruthann. And he's like, the face on the screen is looking, you know, perfectly where they're standing. Uh, it's an interesting Hey, man, when you're technique. like a, when you're a director, you know how they're going to block in real life. <laughs> yeah. He, he could like, he could see ahead. He's must be like this chess master director, I guess. Uh, he could plan their moves out before they get there. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Um, what does Ed say here? Yeah, Ed's got the pivotal statement of saying, look beyond the expressions of anger and really try and hear what the other person's saying. 
uh, one of the hardest hitting sentences that we got in the entire episode. And that's where we're finally untangling the phone cup lines. That is, uh, Ruth Ann and Maurice can finally communicate. And Ruth Ann reveals that she just hates being underneath someone. And Maurice as the opposite and that he likes the feeling of control and dominating. Yeah. They begin to talk it out. You know, I think I agree. It's a pretty powerful message that Ed gives on this TV screen. I also like that he lays out, you know, Maurice and Ruthann, you've both known each other for a really, really long time. Obviously, like you said, Charles, it's like, you know, talk it out, really listen to each other. And, oh, don't forget to rewind the tape, he says, which I don't know why it's important, (laughs) but I guess that's just like back in the day, if you had a tape, it was just good practice to always rewind it. But yeah, I like that they talk it out that Maurice apologizes for laying in some extra penalty payment. Uh, It's funny. Uh, Again, I don't know if this is important. I think it's just there to synergize with the Chris plot line. But Maurice says, uh, he says this quote, whenever I get my hands around a man's throat, even if that man happens to be a woman, it's like, I can't, I can't let go. And, you know, I don't know if this takes place before or after Brother Simon is revealed. I think it's before. It's before Brother Simon is revealed to be a sheep. Maybe some foreshadowing. Mm, okay. Some synergy. Yeah, I, I like that they're able to properly communicate with each other in this scene. But what's really neat, in my opinion, is that Ed is the one that facilitates this. And the only way that Ed can really communicate is with tapes and movies. Like, that's his media. That's how he enters the universe, is with this tactic of communication. And it works. It's yeah. the one that reveals and sets up Ruthann and Maurice. So... I think that's kind of neat that Ed kind of properly knows his identity and it's able to help guide others. Wow, yeah, that's a good point. You know, we've been talking about this whole episode about how communication can break down and things can be misinterpreted, but perhaps the reason why this form of communication works, maybe it's not because it's the best form of communication, but because it is in line with Ed's identity and he knows that to be true within himself and he can speak it very easily that way. I also love that the end of this uh when they settle, come to terms, Maurice and Ruthann, uh, you know, Ed has left them some snacks and some fruit punch. Maurice says, you want some of this fruit punch? I just thought it was funny. But it's also, you know, symbolic because they're sharing some communion together. You know, Ruthann agrees. She says, yeah, pour me some. So they're sharing like a meal together. That is a form of communion. Oh, nice. Good detail. I didn't catch that. I also think it's just really funny. I don't know. It just seems like a, a thing old people might do or just... um I don't know. It just feels very real to Sicily. So yeah, I think we said already, uh, Maurice ends up going back to Ruthann's store. He buys like some shotgun shells, some emery boards, and compliments the um, the paint job. And that does it for Maurice and Ruthann's plotline. And I guess Ed as well. But yeah, so there are, I feel like Joel and Chris really combined together where we could see a lot of reflections in both plot lines with Ruthann and Maurice. Maybe there's not as many reflections, but there are some weird synergies with the uh, um, foreshadowing, perhaps, or just these uh, religious intonations in the language. Yeah, I feel like this episode had a lot to dive into. Like, they had a lot to pile the plate with, and they were leaving it to the audience, but some of that I felt like they just didn't need to go into. We talked about it, where it was, you know, the penultimate and ultimate scene with Chris, where I... 
They would have done better just rewriting it or just not having the scenes in general. I think the episode would have hit harder right there. Uh, I like that they wanted to go in this direction. This is not the first time that Northern Exposure decided to really experiment and just, you know, trust that the audience could follow along. But all in all, I really enjoyed it. I just wish that there were certain points that they would have changed. But, you know, you can't always have everything be perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's a good. It's a it's a it's a fine episode. Uh, well, Charles, this is the time in our podcast where we invite our guest, someone who has never seen the show before. And today we have Leanna, who is a filmmaker. And when I selected this episode, I again, I, I said I remembered that twist with Brother Simon, but I didn't really remember like what the result was of all that. But I knew I wanted to see what she had to say about the episode. So without further ado, let's hear what she says. I found this episode of Northern Exposure to be super interesting. I was um, like hooked all the way throughout. I don't know what the premise of this show is. I've never seen it. I feel like maybe it's about this town and just all of the eccentric characters in it. But it was definitely really entertaining. Um, I liked the whole story in the monastery. It felt like this guy was searching for solitude and spiritual growth. And then the poem he reads at the end implies that all he learned was that he can't live without women. Um, so I thought that was funny. And, you know, for some reason I wasn't surprised that Brother Martin turned out to be a woman, but I was surprised when she said uh, that she wanted to live a monastic life, but that she couldn't see without living, uh, she couldn't see living without the presence of men. Uh, because I feel like there's a difference between not being able to live without the presence of men and then living with only men all the time while being mute. So I felt like that was glossed over. Um, and the poem he reads at the end was really lovely and like very flowery, but overall it like it's kind of ruined by the first line implying that uh, nature made women to temper man. But I guess it's like very fitting with the biblical theme because it's very, you know, Eve uh, was made from the rib of Adam or whatever. So I, I did find that storyline really interesting. But overall, just like saying a flowery poem and then like showing showing footage of the townswomen over it doesn't really make it progressive. Um, but um, the dispute between the two older characters was funny because I don't really feel like it was resolved. It kind of felt like this guy was a crazy asshole, and then at the end was like, I can't keep my hands off people's necks, want a juice box, and then they're friends again. Because that was a little quirky. But overall, it was like just a really satisfying, entertaining show to watch. I definitely am interested in watching more and uh, watching it from the beginning. Yeah, and I'd recommend this to anyone looking to watch something entertaining. I don't know what the premise is, and I'm very interested in uh, listening to the podcast and finding out. All right, that was Leanna with her commentary right there. I like that. <laughs> I don't know why I really laughed at that line. She said that the Maurice and Ruthann plotline wasn't really resolved, but she said, like, hey, do you want a juice box? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually, in taking it in context of what she was saying, it's like, 
Maurice just seems like a really aggressive, mean guy who likes to choke people out. Like, it sounds really psychopathic. (laughs) (laughs) And it is important to say that, you know, they don't fully, I mean, I would say for the episode, there is some resolution there. But in the end, the final scene they share together, it's one of those great moments where you can see some change, but you also can still see that these characters remain true to themselves, you know? It's conditional change. There's some change, but they're still they're still at their core very much themselves. I just <laughs> yeah, I think that's funny that Maurice is this murdering psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Uh she brought up a really interesting point where she was surprised that brother Simon couldn't find like a good compromise between living right. with man or living a uh, monastic life, which is just completely cutting it off. So like there's a large gamut between zero and a hundred. So yeah. very wide range. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is. She brings up that interesting point. They didn't really explain that, you know, brother. Well, she said brother Martin, but later she emailed me and says, Oh, I am. I'm in brother Simon. She was thinking of uh, brother Martin from a school, but uh, brother Simon saying that she can't live without men, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that she has to live with only men and be silent the whole time. Like there's definitely a middle ground, right? I think that's what we're getting at, Charles. <laughs> Again, we we touched on this in our discussion, but that scene kind of um just is blurted out. It's just kind of like bleh. Like that scene comes out all at once. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I don't know. There's a there's a lot going on there. Yeah, we can see that again in the next scene when she talks about Chris's final sermon and she likes the language, like she likes the poem that he's saying, but the way he prefaced it was not super progressive. Like it was, you know, like we said, implying that the women were created just to balance out men rather than being their own individual being. Yeah, she said that it's a beautiful flowery uh, poem, but maybe its first line doesn't really do the idea justice. Though she says, like, if you had to look at it in a biblical context, just as like an allegory for the Bible, there is the idea of Adam and Eve. You know, Eve was created from Adam's rib. Doesn't necessarily mean that was like um, the right message, but I guess it has that harmony with the Bible, perhaps. I do think it's funny that, remember, I kind of, I kind of gave this as an interpretation, but the ending to Leanna was like, the sh- the episode implies that the lesson that Chris learned was that he can't live without women. And I think that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of what it's saying. I mean, I guess there's a lot more going on, but, uh, like, I don't know, <laughs> kind of, uh, that was, you know, our complaint of the episode being a little unfocused maybe. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's a valid, uh, criticism right there. It's that, you know, he came out of it pretty much at the same door that he came into. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the last little thing I wanted to touch on with Leanna's analysis was, well, she said, what is the show about? She said she she felt like the show was about the town and all the interesting characters uh, that inhabit it. And I guess if you were to ask me or ask someone who watches the show, like, what is Northern Exposure about? You might say, oh, it's about this Jewish doctor from New York who was transplanted to the small town of Sicily, Alaska and all the antics that ensue. But I think by the time we reach this point in the show, at least right now, it's definitely beginning to evolve past just Joel. I mean, I do love him being the central character, but the show has taken on much more of a life of its own, and the town has a bigger influence. You know, it's it's not solely driven towards Joel. We really um, encompass the whole town when we watch 
northern exposure. Right, right. I, I think that's a great way to summarize it, is that it transitioned from being about one primary character and a bunch of secondary characters, to which then uh, everyone just basically became, like, quote-unquote, a primary character. Yeah, ensemble cast. Well, hey, Leanna, thank you so much for watching the episode, taking the time to record your thoughts. Uh, really enjoyed it. And Charles, we're going to come back next week with the next episode, season four, episode 13, Duets. What do you think that's about? Duets. Um, I'm going to guess that it's actually not about music. It's Even though it has musical connotation behind it, I would say that it's about uh, two people of differing worldviews trying to come together to create one singular thing. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm uh, looking over the synopsis and remembering certain parts. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of... Uh, a lot of duets, a lot of twos involved, I guess. Uh, okay, Charles, that's enough for now. I'll talk to you next week. All right, see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Leanna for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com, at Northern Overpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.